This is forward, backwards, and upside down. He knows old stuff. She knows new stuff. All right. We are doing our first podcast. This is really exciting, Nate. It is. Are you ready to go, Michelle? Yes. We're going to start with our first segment. We have five segments. It's kind of our theory for right now. First, we're starting with what happened today. So tomorrow, which I know is not today, but it's close enough, is International Women's Day, which is a good opportunity for us to celebrate all the wonderful women in our lives. This year is hashtag balance for better, according to United Nations, which is their way of really putting forward this idea to say that if we have gender balance, sort of equity within board members, countries, et cetera, uh, that that will bring us all into a better place in the world, which I think is quite a good message and kind of the Me Too movement that I think could have been polarizing in many ways, that we're starting to try to bring this this idea that like all together balance is, is for the better. Yeah, I find that it um, it's appeal that is made to the ca- capitalistic side interesting, right? So I've heard recently... Um, Right, this idea that, yeah, the balanced boardroom can also be more profitable, right? You can appeal to a wider range of customers. Uh, and so I find that the UN taking up that perhaps slightly more capitalistic approach to balance being an interesting thing. I haven't really seen it, though, applied um, to the political sector. So that's interesting, too, right? This idea of, right, a more balanced electorate, maybe, or more balanced um, elected officials, right, can um, improve things. That's definitely an interesting idea that the UN uh, is, has put that argument forward. Well, what I think is, in the political sense, there are countries you would be, so the country with the most representative parliament in the world is Rwanda. Um, they actually have close to 50% parity. And actually, many countries across Africa have much better uh, parity in their parliaments, which seems kind of uh, different to countries like the United States, which doesn't even have, I think, a third, less than a third of women in uh, represented seats um, and kind of different places in Europe. So even though the boardroom seems to be countries are able to put regulations into that, it's more difficult on the political side. Um, I, I would be curious, I know that gender equality is one of the sustainable development goals for the UN, um, what their general targets are and whether this message is trying to to push to not overreach on those issues, but keep a holistic view when it comes to gender equality. Yeah, I mean, looking uh, looking backwards, right? I mean, certainly you see a strong tradition of matrilineal cultures in Africa, right? So there's there's um, right the greatest that come to my mind, of course, are right the Nubian cultures, um, which all had a lot of um, a lot of matrilineal uh, passing of power and things like that, right? So modern-day Sudan would be the home of the Nubian people, but they really migrate and spread their culture throughout um, Africa, which is, um, yeah, I wonder how, if that um, sort of more cultural history lends itself to a, a more equal elected official base in Africa today. Yeah. So what is our historical what happened today? Uh, well, uh, on this date, um, so that's March the 7th, uh, Alexander Graham Bell was given his patent to the telephone, right? Certainly one of the more um, impactful inventions in history, right? This um, really, you know, signals a dawn, right, of what 
in some ways could eventually be called right our information age, right? The ability to transmit information at a near instantaneous speed is really going to revolutionize things. All right, so this is in 1876, um, and this voice-operated system, right, so it's going to be quicker and faster than simple telegraphs and things like right, that. The ability to communicate the human voice across vast distances, uh, really a game-changer uh, in, the, in the historical um, sense of our modern society. I know one of my kind of favorite funny facts is that prior to the telephone, you could have wars that are totally signed and ended in one place, but the battlefield continues because they're just not being communicated, these, uh, you know, disarmament agreements, which in our day is completely ridiculous. I mean, I feel like we could end a war over Twitter now. Yeah, let's hope we don't start one. Um, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, the, the 1812 comes to mind, right? So you have this great American victory, which really comes actually after the treaty has already been signed, right? But you also get a different problem, right? So, um, you know, the armchair general, right? If you look at, you know, a uh, number of commanding officers and high army officials who actually start serving on, you know, who are serving on the front lines or serving near the front, right? I guarantee you that will go dramatically down, right? It's already been going down, right? You know, even Napoleon didn't lead from the front, but, you know... Um, if you look at back to more medieval kings, right, sometimes they would lead their soldiers. Um, you know, Gustavus Adolphus, right, leads the Swedish knights um, into battle in the Thirty Years' War. But, of course, you know, he he takes one for the team. He'll die in one of the major battles, right? And really, you know, that honestly breaks um, in many ways the coalition of the of the Swedish assistance to the Protestants. So, yeah, the battlefield, definitely a big game-changer. Uh, with the advent of something like the telephone, right? And we see a modern battlefield evolving today, right? Of course, the battle for 5G um, and the continuing struggle between the United States and China and then also American companies and Chinese companies, right? Certainly an interesting set of issues. Yeah, I think there's there's a, a big talk about with the Internet of Things that 5G is kind of the next level up, the ability for us to have this immense connectivity where cars can talk to one another. There are other people who really think that the, the security risks that come with 5G is just not worth sort of the investment in infrastructure, that we're getting to the point with technology that in order to make steps forward, the enormous leap and kind of redoing infrastructure is not coming. It's coming at so many risks and so little additional benefit. Um, I know I, I think of like, you know, I've heard of a smart microwave and my thought is like, two milliseconds it takes me to press a button. What do I really add if I can just yell at my microwave rather than press the button? Um, but it, it's really coming down to, to major issues on um, intellectual property between countries. Huawei is definitely in the news. There's arrests on both sides, uh, Canada, China, the United States, extradition. Um, but it's also, there's a lot of temptation. So today, uh, Czech Republic is really getting courted for this 5G network by Huawei, which other European countries in the European Union are really questioning Huawei's intentions um, as their connection to the Chinese state. Uh, and I think it's starting to, to bring up, um, as China is expanding in its Belt and Road, sort of the battle lines of who's going to fall on what side in this kind of new generation technology as like the first real battlefront. 
Yeah, right. It looks, you know, looking forward, right, this idea of, you know, technology as this new driving force, um, you know, and you look at a lot of sort of futurist and, you know, future interpretations, right, you see that sometimes, right, this idea of technology sort of saving mankind and being this liberator of mankind, right, futurism, all about this idea of a sort of um, technological, you know, paradise or Shangri-La that we approach. And then it's interesting to see, right, technology in the modern world, right, you bring up this idea of it's too much of a security risk, right? The idea that, you know, if my net microwave is 5G, what's to stop the North Koreans from hacking into every microwave in America and, you know, putting them to nefarious purposes like heating our soup up too hot or something, you know, <laughs> terrible, right? You know, what, right, the price that, you know, as you create this more inter in intricate and interconnected technological world, right, the damage that, you know, in, in um, internet and cyber warfare can wage, right? So in many ways, right, we have this more and more nuanced and more powerful capacities, you know, once again, to destroy, right? You know, the idea of, you know, an internet war, right? Something that you could, you know, completely crush the technological infrastructure of somewhere, but that would really leave the physical infrastructure still intact, right? You know, first you had these ideas of like, you know, the EMP bomb or some sort of, thing that would fry all the electronics but now right you know technically speaking right you can you can attack power grids you can attack phone lines you can attack satellites gps global positioning right you could bring a country pretty um dramatic damage right you know through this interconnected world we live in so right as we become more open with our networks right you're correct where right? there is this idea of the security risk which is sort of to me, kind of a bummer, right? You know, I've always been someone who believes in this idea of a, you know, a future where humans come together and we we use our technology to advance the human cause. Um, and something like this is really worrying and, and troublesome. Yeah, and it's it's bringing sort of. Uh... I think we there had been a trajectory for a while with technology. I mean, there were all, always fears, kind of, you know, kids watch too much television, now they have too much screen time, et cetera. But the, the joys of technology have kind of always gone kind of on an uphill, you know, slope. And I think we're this is the first time that, like, I think technology is really starting to weigh people down. And the, the security risks and all of the hacks that are leading to people's identity being stolen from them. Um, you know, I, the other day, realized that Spotify got hacked and, like, tons of people's, you can see, like, an email and what account level they had. And, like, that's the tiniest thing in the world to know what level of Spotify somebody had. But, yeah, there's, like, there's such a, if I was on that list, like, the, I had Spotify, but yet somebody else knew that I, I'm there's starting to become a tension where as we've like gained all this joy from technology, we're also starting to get crushed by the consequences of our privacy and data and the data game is like, you know, slowly becoming a bigger, bigger issue until it either potentially explodes or we figure out a new solution. But um, all of this is kind of as we look forward is, is going to be kind of the next big questions. And the, I think, uh, the dimension of kind of which countries kind of own and control some of these, whether they're algorithms or data, um, is going to continue. The different countries are responding to that very differently, and that's going to really change 
you know, the European Union's view on privacy rights, uh, incredibly different and really changing how different companies interact in that uh, jurisdiction. So uh, it's it's definitely from Alexander Graham Bell to today, like, whew, but we, we have a lot of questions left to ask. Speaking of questions, uh, what are some things that people have, have been asking you about, right? In many ways, we sort of first thought of this idea of a podcast um, because we got tired of, not tired, but, you know, <laughs> we had to consistently explain similar or the same thing to a lot of our friends and family. Uh, and, you know, why, uh, why not, in this case, try to kill a few birds with just one stone? Yeah, so uh, my the first one uh, for this first podcast is actually from my friend Claire. Um, we're not necessarily going to shout out every week, but I'm going to shout out Claire because she's been really supportive of us doing this podcast. Um, her and I were talking about the Green New Deal. So before we talk about the Green New Deal, um, can you tell us a little bit about the first uh, big New Deal um, under Roosevelt? Sure, right. So the American New Deal, you've got you know, basically a defunct economy uh, via the 1929 stock market collapse, right? Um, you know, the American manufacturing sector had been slowing down. There had been um, increasingly, you know, sort of fears about things, right? And then you get this massive bank panic, stocks crash, you know, entire savings just vanish. Um, and so at this point, right, people, not only have people lost a lot of money, but there's really also been this loss of faith. Right. The, you know, the dust bowl is setting in. Right. And it is the Great Depression. Right. Things, you know, are not going well in the United States. You have competing ideologies right, on how to fix something like this. Right. The 30s are a time of fascism in Europe. Right. Of growing um, authoritarian and totalitarian states. Right. Not only in Italy and Germany, but you have greater authoritarians taking over in Poland, um, Yugoslavia, right? All of these, um, Spain, you know, and in many ways it seems like perhaps, right, this new democracy experiment isn't going to work. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, elected largely through a policy of trying to bring about uh, the response to this new, this economic disaster, right, through what he's going to call the New Deal, which is largely a series of government welfare and employment systems that, you know, not to use a bad word, but are basically socialist, right? The idea of the government is going to employ people to do things like create infrastructure, uh, beautification projects, Right. The New Deal, right, is the creation of things like Social Security. Right. You have numerous American programs coming out of the alphabet soup agencies. Right. So the, my, my personal favorite was always the Boys in Green. Right. Which were generally, you know, young, middle aged American men who, for the most part, are out of work. And the United States government will hire thousands, thousands, thousands of these workers and they will do everything from build highways to plant flowers. Um, and I think it's, it's a time when the United States really embraces a more communal approach to a problem. Um, and I find it very interesting, right, that this idea of climate change as being the next 
Great Depression, right? This potentially devastating thing that's going to happen across the globe, right? Because the thing that people sometimes forget about the Great Depression is it is a global event, too. So even though the first New Deal was only really in the United States, I think the idea of this Green New Deal might be something that could transcend borders, right? Which is a really interesting idea. Yeah, so the what what people forget is the 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 first time this was like really coined as a phrase is is the global new deal um which is by an economist um edward barrier uh but this is back in 2009 um kind of proposal for the united nations um environmental program but it's it's really like nathan said it's looking at kind of this 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 green problem and kind of how economies need to kind of adjust uh, for the for the, the future of climate change and how uh, you know every part of the economy at that point wasn't really considering sort of this the effects of climate change this is sort of uh, when uh, really heightened conversations global standards when it came to carbon pricing carbon taxes cap trade systems the way that we can make companies pay for, their side effects uh, towards climate change. And so um, what is interesting is that um, this economist is actually against the Green New Deal as proposed now in Congress because it's it's dealing with two issues simultaneously and in that way not doing either issue well, which is um, kind of the, the current criticism when it comes to the Green New Deal which is looking at sort of the problem of joblessness and economic inequality in the United States and the issues related to climate change and wanting to kind of make fair prices on companies and sort of plopping them together, uh, which I think is an interesting way to look at the problem, but it has the potential to isolate a large group of people who would be willing to assist you in one realm or in the other realm but once you start to combine them, the, the, the interests start to be difficult to kind of bring everyone together unless you have, it, it would require a really radical rethink, uh, putting a lot of money, time and energy towards this issue, um, which I'm very curious if, if we can get that financial backing, it is unclear how much this is gonna cost. And, I agree that as a as a global community, we need to be thinking about this. This is this is the next world war over resources if we don't start considering making adequate changes to mitigate sort of the consequences that are not coming in 50 years, but are coming in 10 years. What I find, again, you, you're right, this idea of the two issue, right? The both the socioeconomic and ecological ramifications of industrial capitalism. But I think at the end of the day, what the Green New Deal to me provides is a very, and perhaps, you know, perhaps an elegant solution too, because it does, I think it does provide the opportunity to deal with the root of the problem in some ways, which I think is in late stage industrial capitalism, right? This um, increasingly growing disregard for the welfare of humanity at the for the for the sake of profit which has worked fabulously well for some portions of the human population and for other portions it's not doing so hot and so 
I agree with you that you buy in some ways by creating a socioeconomic tinge to climate change, you perhaps alienate the technological billionaires and industrial capitalists who could and would possibly fight against climate change. But I, you know, I have to think again, the, the hypocrisy of the Davos summit, you have, you know, mega millionaires flying around on private jets discussing climate change. Yes, which seems a little ass backwards. Who haven't seen the historian, and his name is slipping me right now. He's a historian who was invited to Davos and gives, like, real talk to these, you know, the hyper-elite of the economics world that they're just, like, they're missing the point. Um, Rutger Bergman. Thank you. Bregman. Rutger Bregman. Yeah. I highly recommend his talk uh, because I, I think it does get at the point that you're getting at, which is, I think, at some point, at some point, every, people need to wake up and realize what's happening. Um, and I think the the main issue I see is buy-in. Um, this is going to take a lot of money and a lot of buy-in culturally. Um, and I think what I am seeing is that there's a, a certain percentage of the population who keeps pushing closer and closer to, let's call it, like 100% perfect environmental friendliness, whether it comes to recycling, what sort of um, organic products they're using, et cetera. And as they're getting closer and closer, um, there's still a huge portion of the population who's at like, let's call it 20% of this of this scale. Um, and and to me, kind of the issue is how do we how do we get that 20 that portion of the population who's sitting at 20% to kind of raise themselves up to 50, 60, which is going to take buy-in from them sort of changes to infrastructure, building more recycling plants in other states other than kind of California and states like that who have really um, been pushing this for a long time. While at the same time, I think the population who is getting closer and closer to this 100% has uh, increased their standards to a level where it's starting to become polarizing. Not that the polarization is a continued issue on, on many fronts kind of happening in the world, um, but what I'm worried about is the green, the green New Deal is asking for a lot of money uh, to kind of work on these projects, and and I I I would love to see the buy-in sort of how do how do we convince people that instead of the coal mining job that they their parents and grandparents had, this solar panel job is is not only a replacement job in terms of economic opportunity but is also saving the planet and kind of bringing, bringing up this, this uh, environmental score, so to speak. Um, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure the like infrastructure work, the groundwork to get that buy-in is there, um, even though I, I desperately wish it was. Um, and I think it's, uh, this has the potential to not go anywhere, not because of the ideas, but because of the, like how much it tries to combine into one thing. Um, that it's like overwhelming without that level of buy-in. I mean, you have the classical debate: idealism versus practicalism, practicality rather. Right? I mean, you're right. You know, if we can't achieve a hundred percent, how about fifty? Right? Yeah. I think right. You talk about this idea of right the buy-in. 
you know, shifting the economy from, you know, the coal miner to the solar plant, right? I mean, to me, that argument shouldn't be very difficult, right? I think you're going to die of less respiratory infections working in a power in a solar self plant than a uh, coal mine, I would hope. Um, you know, I, they probably have windows. I don't think there are many, very many mines that have windows, right? So there's two pretty solid arguments already. I think the problem is, um, in many ways, when you talk about getting people on message for the Green New Deal, is that messages are hard these days. Um, and there's a lot of different competing messages. Um, and some of those messages are a bunch of hot nonsense. Um, and in many ways, people who resist something like a Green New Deal have gotten pretty good at their hot nonsense. Um, and it makes the message difficult. So you're right. Something like the Green New Deal is very vulnerable because it's vulnerable to a lot of different messages um, from a lot of different sources um, that'll probably end up destroying it. Uh, and you're right. We won't uh, ever really see something like this until perhaps, uh, you know, those 10 years come to pass and things start to change a little. You know, I think eventually people need to be distracted um, from their bread and their circus long enough to really buy in to something like a Green New Deal. Uh, and so I hope it doesn't take another Great Depression. I hope it doesn't take a crash. But it might. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I think uh, thinking about green economies is, is definitely, it's at odds with sort of this up-and-coming um, millennial socialism. Uh, so... So that that can be a topic for another day, but um, I there's a lot going on in that space. So we'll have to to see what happens in the coming coming days about it. Yeah, and just one final note on the way out about this one about the original New Deal is the original New Deal is a good bandage, but what really heals the American economy is a little thing called the Second World War. That's a really good point. Yeah. Well. So. Let's not hope there's a third one that will heal the bandage uh, coming out of the Great Recession. Let's hope not. <laughs> All right. We are moving on to our rolling through Reddit segment, uh, where we're going to roll through a page of Reddit and see what we come up with, uh, just to see kind of new interesting things we may or may not have known before, or just talk about interesting things happening in the world. So, you ready, Nathan? Ready to rock. Okay. All right. Apparently, the U.S. Supreme Court rules that the World Bank can be sued. That's definitely something I, I didn't know was even on the bucket list. Also, why are they going to sue them? Let's see. Yeah, I don't know who's brought this case. Um, certainly, I mean, this brings up some interesting ideas of the role of international versus you know sovereign power of states right this is looking like it's the decision in jam versus the international finance corporation also known as the world bank right so i don't know who jam is going to be let's see so what i'm reading is that so in u.s courts if you're a foreign government there's limited immunity within the within the u.s jurisdiction um, however, for some reason, the international organizations like the World Bank uh, had had received kind of blanket absolute immunity. And what this court decision, which was seven to one, 
seems to have brought the international uh, organizations like the World Bank to the same level as foreign governments. Um, yeah. I think is I I see as a move kind of the the U.S. taking kind of back some some sovereignty to say that these international multilateral organizations are not above the law or above the status of regular countries. They're coalitions of countries and should be treated as such rather than some sort of um, upper echelon um, uh, grouping, which I think goes with the perceived loss of power of the international organizations kind of in the last few years, um, particularly in this administration, though the Supreme Court shouldn't be swayed by that particular issue. Another um, one of the top world news uh, vote getters of the day, Obama warns that if the world isn't careful, democracy could be in danger. And I quote, democracy is a garden that has to be tended. This is a bone I've picked uh, with former President Barack Obama a few times um, before. He hasn't uh, ever, you know, messaged back to me. But if the <laughs> garden needs tending, buddy, get back to work, okay? There were plenty of American presidents who, after serving their term, returned to public service as members of the Senate or other positions. We would love to have you back, Barack. You did some good work over those last eight years or so, but in many ways, your promises, the yes we can, haven't all come to fruition. So come back to us. Work again, as a part of our democracy. I would love to have you back. I think you're a charismatic and fascinating figure, and I think you can achieve more. So come on back if you'd like to tend the garden of democracy. Well said, Nathan. Uh, I, I completely agree in terms of, uh, I think, in thinking about the 2020 election, one of the things that I'm really looking at is a unifier, somebody who can kind of, um, because I we think- We can't be the president again. No. <laughs> He's got to find something else to do in 2020. I'm not arguing that Obama should be president. I'm saying that in kind of this polarizing world, I think if we can't find a candidate who can really speak and unify, it's going to feel like only one portion of the population is getting their voice heard if somebody wins who doesn't have that ability to kind of bring in lots of voices and stuff. It's just something that's in the back of my mind. Um, and I think it's happening in a lot of countries where the like the isolation feels to be happening and where is the how the role of democracy in in kind of giving a voice to across the board um, sort of where we can make sure that that's happening effectively. Um, um, segueing on uh, tending a garden, we've done um, a little more trimming of the weeds. Uh, Paul Manafort, former Trump champ campaign chairman, sentenced to 47 months, which is entirely too short, but I'm sure we can turn over a few more rocks and add a few more years to that traitor sentence. So he still has his uh, DC convictions because he he played he took a risk and decided to go for both cases, thinking one he would lose, he and uh, one he would win. He ends up losing both, and he didn't combine his sentences. 
So this is the first, if my understanding is correct, this is the first one. He has a second one out of the DC courts coming up. So 48 months to start. Um, this is quite unusual. Usually you combine your counts because I think some of them are repeated counts and then do kind of a sentencing all at once. Uh, but, you know, you take a risk and uh, hope you don't get convicted and not not his lucky day. All right, well, I found a great one because I found this is a great one that I saw and it reminds me of something that I read today, which is fascinating. So Facebook is banning anti-vax ads in its new uh, push against vaccine hoaxes. So a new study came out that proves the kind of 10 year previous study that there is no link to autism in um, vaccines against, um, why is that slipping my mind? What is the vaccine for? It's like- Measles? Measles, thank you. Oh my gosh, it's the MRR, right? Measles, mump, MMR, measles, mumps, and rembolia or whatever it is. Rebola, uh, I believe, yes. Thank you, thank you, filling that in. So uh, this is good. I, I, I personally think this is good for Facebook to kind of, uh, kind of jump in on this. The other thing that I read, which I found completely fascinating, is a different study found um, higher levels of autism in mothers who had contracted the flu during their pregnancy. So I'm not really sure where this one's going to go. But in the same time that we're saying this, this vaccine against this quite, quite difficult disease doesn't cause autism. We have this other link that we're seeing, which may explain some of the trends that people have been um, kind of citing as proof of all these. So if this could be an opportunity to kind of debunk some of the claims coming from anti-vax ca campaigns, or it could create a whole other anti-vax campaign. I, I have no idea what's going to happen in that sphere. But good of Facebook to ban anti-vax ads, in my opinion. And also, um, we'll have to see what this, this flu diagnosis leading to higher levels of autism in, in baby and in born children is going to, to do. But the linking, uh, linking this story to the last one we were talking about, um, I've been thinking about, right, what is the culpability of the anti-vaccination movement, right? Can I, it both, you know, civil suit, right? Let's say I'm teaching in a school and it's a district where no vaccination is allowed and your kid gives me measles, right? Um, I'm curious, right, is this idea of, you know, could I, there be civil suit there? And right, this other idea, right, of, you know, let's say parents who don't vaccinate a child, kid cuts himself, gets tetanus, dies of tetanus, right? I mean, in what point, right, is that neglect, right? I mean, we have seen cases of, you know, the vegan parents, um, you know, giving a kid malnourishment through, you know, these sort of um, hyper vegan diets that a child really can't um, do. So, yeah, I mean, I think this interesting uh, possibility, right, of sort of the the legal aspects of the vaccination movement, right? You know, Facebook, the court of public opinions, is making its rulings, right? Um, but, you know, again, like, what is this, you know, what, in that case, right, this idea of the First Amendment, right? You know, what right do the anti-vax uh, movement have to their freedom of speech? Right. I certainly don't agree with their message, but I do believe uh, strongly in the First Amendment of this country.
Now, this is particularly ads, which is going to, to uh, Facebook is making money off these. So th I think they have some control. Oh, yeah. No, Facebook is a private company. They're allowed to do whatever they want. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, publicly traded, but, you know, still. Right. I think what's interesting in culpability, I was reading um, sort of as I think there are four states in the United States which are having outbreaks and there are uh, anti-vax parents who are preventing their kids from going to school because there's been an outbreak of measles and their child isn't vaccinated. Don't even get into the start of how, you know, there's an obvious solution to this. But at what point can these children start using sort of less, they didn't get vaccinated, but like they were taken away from their education. Like, are there subsequent consequences kind of in this realm that can be used in civil cases? I mean, if in Australia, somebody could actually win a conviction for their name being ridiculous and the bullying and sort of harsh treatment, I, I don't know the language specifically, um, and they can win that case on their name, I'm I'm fairly certain that some of these, as they grow older, anti-vax children may have a, a civil suit possibility. Um, I think I don't. The movement is young, so I don't know if any of those kids would be of court court pursuant age. Um, but I I definitely agree with you on like where where are the lines drawn? Like at what point? At what point? Where where can the lines be drawn? I mean. I, at some point, it becomes ridiculous. Yeah, and um, moving on now, and sort of, again, relating back to our previous conversation about the Green New Deal, um, microplastic pollution has been revealed to be, and I quote, absolutely everywhere uh, through a new research. Uh, the Guardian reporting on this, right? The contaminants found across UK lakes, rivers, US groundwater, but even uh, in more remote places, right? So one of the more contaminated places they test is the Thames, where you're getting more than a 1,000 small pieces of plastic per liter, but in even remote places such as the Falls of Dochart in Loch Lomond of Scotland, you're getting two or three pieces of plastic per liter. Uh, right, so this is, you know, possibly creating, you know, we've seen microplastics are harmful to um, marine life, right? We've seen um, uh, another study, so associated with this one, right, that every marine mammal tested in a recent UK survey, had plastic inside of it, right? That's Porpoises, dolphins, question. seals, all of them. Yeah, that was a trivia question. And we were like, no way, can you put down 100%? And I'm like, I guarantee you the study came back 100%. And we were right, 100%. Yeah, so right, so not only, um, oh, my bad, Falls of Dokart and Loch Lomond, two separate places. Apologies to our Scottish listeners. <laughs> right, so you have, um, yeah, really pretty terrifying levels of microplastics, right? Which, you know, do we really know about the possible long-term harmful side effects of consumption of microplastics, right? You know, they could contain certain um, microbacteria, as I've, I've read, right? These sort of possible contaminants, right? And just generally speaking, I'm not really a huge fan of the idea of that I'm consuming uh, and ingesting tiny little plastic pieces um, consistently. Don't really like that idea very much. Uh, and yet, not really clear about any possible solution. Right? I don't think we can vaccinate against that, right? No, no, not at all. Uh, should we move to numbers in the news segment? Yeah, I think we've, um, you know, without getting down towards the second page, right? You never really want to kick next on Reddit, right? That's where 
dark and scary things start to happen. So, yeah, I think we can uh, move on on. All right. So our first number of the news, um, I am going with the number 897, which I found out just a few minutes ago has actually probably reached over 900. This is the number of cases of Ebola um, in, in Congo. This is the now second deadliest uh, Ebola outbreak um, in recorded history after, of course, the West African um, outbreak that killed several thousand a few years ago. Uh, reported cases of deaths um, over 500. Uh, there have been a lot of issues, particularly with this outbreak, um, because it is in a region of Congo that has seen a lot of violence. And so many of the healthcare centers that have been set up, um, particularly in the North Kivu area of Congo, um, have seen uh, rebel groups come and attack. Uh, so um, MMSF, Doctors Without Borders, Ministerium Sans Frontieres, have um, been evacuated from the area. So those certain clinics have been opening back up um, kind of after attacks. Many of times they're not with uh, their um, various organizational assistants that are really key. Sometimes their main doctors um, with sort of institutional knowledge, particularly uh, ones that have Ebola uh, specialization. Um, there's also fears that because of uh, the, the spread of it and the armed conflict, that people aren't seeking medical help and are therefore, instead of sort of what was happening in West Africa, where at some point people would, would know, okay, I have Ebola symptoms, I go here, um, because it may be dangerous to kind of go towards that clinic, particularly if it's several miles um, away or even further than that. Uh, people aren't going to health clinics and therefore they're not getting diagnosed so this 897, probably closer to 900 or more cases at this point is probably a low estimate. Uh, and so uh, in the midst of Congo kind of coming out of an election, sort of trying to see these new reforms, this is a thorn in its side, to say the least, and has this additional um, armed conflict issue. And this, of course, is armed conflict that has not dissipated for decades, uh, particularly in the North Kivu region. Yeah, what I find interesting about that number, and you mentioned like the size of this outbreak being the second largest, is that I have heard nothing about this. Not on the news, not on, right? We just looked at the top 25, you know, top voted stories of world news on Reddit. Not a single blip about this. Um, which goes pretty much in lock and step for what, you know, news coming out of the Congo, which is that, uh, generally speaking, the West doesn't give a shit, which is unfortunate. Um, yeah, it really is. And particularly, I think um, what made people care most, particularly in the United States and Europe, um, but particularly the United States, is when they had U.S. citizens potentially coming back from West Africa with Ebola. Um, I mean, the like huge panics um, that Ebola was going to like rage the United States. Um, and and that hasn't happened yet because the, the people kind of affected by this particular crisis are people completely dedicated to the region. Again, this is a, a non-stable part of Congo. Um, and so you're not having the same sort of possible outbreaks to the United States. It's not in a large enough city yet. Um, and But, you know, it's a huge number of people and it's a very difficult disease to tackle. Um, the good news, though, is that um, the uh, 
it's not a cure. It's a it's something that seems to be helping um, Ebola victims. Um, they've been giving it to uh, to aid organizations that are working in the region. Is actually from the it, it's it's from the bodily fluids of a survivor of um, one of the other largest Ebola outbreaks in Congo in the late 90s, I believe. Um, and so, out of his survival, he was able to give. You know, his blood had a certain um, certain thing that helped. Uh, you'd have to get somebody like my sister who knows way more about uh, sort of biology and things like that than I do. Um, uh, so, so at least like because these outbreaks have happened before, there are survivors. There are people who can kind of help make the next outbreak less less severe. So, um, I there there have been quite good articles about sort of this the cycle. So. Um, Hopefully it will never get to the size it was in West Africa a few years ago. But we'll see. Nathan, what's your number of the week? So uh, my number of the week is 60,000. You heard that right, 60,000. This comes from a documentary released uh, by the Lexus Corporation uh, called Takumi, a 60,000-hour story on the survival of human craft. This is a 60,000-hour documentary that depicts this idea of takumi, which is, to the Japanese, how long it takes to become a master craftsman, right? So in the Western country, this idea of the 10,000 hours. Well, for the Japanese, that is insufficient. They believe it takes a 60,000-hour dedication to become a true master of a craft, right? So to play with this number a little bit... Um, that's going to be 7,500 eight-hour workdays, um, which equa equates to about 20 years if you never take a single day off. Oh, my gosh. Um, so to even watch this documentary, if you left it running nonstop for 24 hours a day, you're going to need about seven years to watch this documentary. Now, there is a cut-down version. Um, but what I find really interesting about this is it brings up this idea, this question of right, the survival of human craftsmanship. Um, and I find it really interesting, right? So the director of this, uh, Clay Jeter, happens to direct one of my favorite things around the web these days uh, to watch, which is Chef's Table, right? He um, really, this masterful and exquisite exploration of the craft of cooking, right? Chef's Table really just, you know, full-on food porn. Um, and so in many ways, this documentary, which follows four different masters, um, you know, definitely a little shameless Lexus promotion, right? One of their four masters is a master car craftsman and car designer. Uh, but the other master craftspeople include um, an artist who works almost exclusively in the medium of paper. Um, and I mean, you know, creates just these incredibly intricate and exquisite paper creations. Um, you have uh, a chef. Uh, and then lastly, a construction worker who has been working, uh, works for one of the longest continuously operating construction companies in the world, right? So I think it brings up right, this interesting idea of the interaction between manufacturing, right, machinery, artificial intelligence, and this idea of craftsmanship. So is there something particular about, like, why would, is there, like, is there something particular about Lexus uh, of why, other than kind of a branding thing, do they have sort of a culture of this themselves? They're Japanese, correct? Yeah, Lexus is the luxury version of Toyota. 
Okay. So, yeah, I mean, so they, um, they've debuted at the uh, New York City Film Festival, um, and yeah, I think it seems like a partnership between them and, and Clay Jeter, right? So, again, one of the four craftsmen is Alexis' employee, sort of a little shameless promotion. But again, I think it, it's attempting to sort of hearken this idea of, you know, what is craftsmanship in the modern age? Um, which brings up, you know, interesting questions, right? You know, the, you know, Japan, you know, fairly synonymous with this idea, right? That, you know, the mastered tea ceremony, you know, the exquisite uh, craft of the samurai sword, you know, the katana, this famous blade, right? Folded hundreds of times by a swordsmith, right? You know, the Japanese have in many ways often, you know, more than creativity sometimes, they have, you know, celebrated mastery of a craft, right? So if you don't have 60,000 hours, by the way, you can spend 54 minutes um, enjoying this uh, release, which again, being released online through a dedicated Lexus website. So again, there's a bit of a sellout here um, by this artistic, uh, uh, you know, chef's table director, uh, Clay Jeter. But, you know, someone's got to pay the bills here. And I think there is an interesting story to be told right behind this idea of craftsmanship. You know, the the 60,000-hour nature of it, right, a lot of those are looped scenes of each artist repeating the same essential skills over and over. So it's kind of an inflated number. It's kind of a silly thing. It's kind of an eye-grabber. But, you know, it grabbed my eyes, so I'll give it that credit. Yeah, I just, I wanted to point out a show that Nathan and I, okay, we've only watched the first episode, but the... It's called Making It. It's on. It was on NBC. It is Nick Offerman and Amy Pollard, and it in it people make crafts. And there's almost I forgot like, you know, these people have such specialization in whether it's paper mache or um, metalworking or whatever it is that I, I just that isn't in today's world as much. And it brought me such joy, kind of watching this artisanal skill with sort of hands and really digging into something that's like so specific and so personalized. Uh, so this, yeah, I'll have to take a look at that 54 minutes. Uh, see what I see what I think. All right, we're going to move on to our final two things. The first one is our wholesome happenings which I am happy to report that Queen Elizabeth II has officially made it to Instagram. Uh, she was at the Museum of Science today uh, featuring uh, herself on Instagram. This is, so the, the British royal family, I think, has really upticked their use of social media in recent uh, times, uh, particularly sort of the new pairings, um, of, uh, of um, William and Kate, and of course, Harry and Meghan. Harry and Meghan have been doing some pretty good social media work on their, um, their wildlife campaigns, particularly working on um, uh, anti-poaching. Um, they met in, Bot well, they didn't meet in Botswana. It seems like they fell in love in Botswana um, working. Uh, so they've been doing some recent posts, uh, which, have been sort of getting a lot of a lot of energy and attention on um, rhino tusks, um, so it's it's kind of fun to see such a, a long-standing institution meet the social media masses as we've kind of created our own new royalty in today's age, which would be 
you know, the Kardashians, Katy Perry, whoever, whoever in that popular cultural world we are calling the new queens. Um, it's, it's, I don't know. It makes me so happy that Queen Elizabeth has found Instagram. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I'm all for, you know, as an American having given up, uh, you know, worshiping any royalty. But if my choice is between following Queen Elizabeth on Instagram and following a Kardashian on Instagram, I'll, I'll gladly sign back up with my um, former colonial overlords. <laughs> so. All right, our final segment, our fun or funny fact, just to leave you with something interesting. Apparently, there is a uptick in uh, pet owning of trash animals, such as raccoons, uh, which I, I personally don't quite understand. But then when you look at the photos of them, they are quite cute looking when done properly on the very wonderful Instagram with all its filters and abilities. Yes, um, as, a, as a veteran memer and uh, GIF watcher, I can say that uh, the raccoon is an especially, uh, really one of my favorites uh, in the GIF world. Um, you've got raccoon consistently trying to rinse um, cotton candy off, which is from a Japanese game show. Honestly, a pretty cool um, thing to do, right? The raccoons, they were actually very clean creatures, despite having a reputation as being garbage eaters. Um, they like to wash their food off, and of course they, they keep giving this poor raccoon cotton candy, which it then immediately dunks in the water to wash it off, but, you know, it just disappears, and the poor thing um, is left cotton candyless. Um, yeah, I've, I've watched a raccoon eat grapes. I've watched a raccoon um, do a pretty remarkable thing where it kind of puts its face in its butt and then rolls around um, while wearing a diaper. Um, so, yeah, if you are going to get a raccoon, um, please post awesome videos of it so that my day can be more interesting. Um, thank you, Michelle, for that funny fact finish. Um, it's been a real pleasure hanging out with you uh, and doing this first of um, what will be many podcasts. Yeah, thanks, Nathan, for giving this a try. This is I'm, We're going to have a blast. Uh, so hopefully you've enjoyed our, our, our pilot episode. Are they pilots on podcasts? I don't even know. Why not? <laughs> All right, everyone. See you soon.